Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Ashley. Hello, Will Bailey. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Well, we've been having some difficulties, which is technical difficulties, which is kind of frustrating, but I think we've got it all sorted out. You know, maybe for season two, we could get a producer. I'd be fine with that. Any of our listeners want to become our producer? Anyone? Anyone? For free? (laughs) That would be great. Hey, well, in spite of the fact that we don't have a producer, I think we hit a pretty important milestone this week. 5,000 listens. I'm pretty happy about that. I am too. Is it is it a good thing? Like, are we kicking above our coverage or are we like, does most everyone get 5,000 listens on a first day or? I have no idea. Hmm. Or was it our moms just listening 5,000 times? It could have been that. <laughs> Regardless, it's a 5,000% increase over the amount of listens we had seven months ago. That's exactly right. This has been a really good six months. I've said it often, Will, that this is one of the things in this journey of just tumultuous, like craziness going on at the church over the last six months. The Broken Banquet podcast has been a source of joy. Well, that makes me very happy, Ashley. Yeah. Well, between you and all of the people that we love so much and those couple of people that we really outkicked our coverage and got them on the podcast for interviews, like, holy cow, it's just been such a delight being able to talk to everybody and explore how God's working in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's been fun. So uh, we've got a couple more uh, episodes that are going to air. And then are we finished? Are we all done? Is this the end of the Broken Banquet? It's the end of season one, Will. You're not going to be let off the hook that easily. (laughs) Okay. I don't care how busy you are. So yeah, by uh, I guess the first week of June, we'll air the last episode of season one, which will get us to, I think, 31 episodes. And then we're going to sort of breathe deep for a couple of months. I know uh, we've got a, just a super, super busy summer planned this year with teams coming down and there's a lot going on at, at the church where you are as well. So already looking forward to season two. Got a little list started of folks that we hope to to talk to. Yeah. Listeners, if any of you are interested on being on the Broken Bank podcast, or if you know of someone who who we should interview, just leave us a comment, drop us a review, something, an email. We'd love to have you on. Well, how about today's interview, Ashley? Who are we talking to today? Today's interview comes from the number one country who listens to our podcast, New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit of an exaggeration. Yeah, but... you're probably right. You're right. You're right. Michael Hansen hails from Auckland, New Zealand, and we are stoked to have him on the podcast today. Listeners, I think you will be blessed by this interview, and we hope you enjoy it. <laughs> hey, Will, guess who we have on the podcast today? Tell me, Ashley. We have a fella named Michael Hansen, and he is mm-hmm. currently, well, he lives in Auckland, New Zealand. He's from mm-hmm. from New Zealand. And uh, I want to tell you a story, Will, because you won't believe this. Uh, it's, it must have something to do with you all taking a walk or sharing food or someone <laughs> you know saying, hey, there's this guy you should meet. Am yes. I right about any of those things? Two of the three. So okay. there was a guy that you and I both know, and his name is John Woodward. And John Woodward, exactly. Every every good story starts with John Woodward. <laughs> but he uh, he and he took me to New Zealand for the first time in 2018 
and we visited a a church called Shore Community Church, and it's there in Auckland, New Zealand. A fellow named Ruben Munn is the pastor there, and uh, one of the other pastors at that time was Michael Hansen, who's on the podcast today. And uh, we got to meet him and his wife, Carolyn, and just immediately felt a good kinship with them. But it wasn't until the next year that we sat down and had a beer together. Mm, there it is, folks. <laughs> <laughs> the next year, we sat down at a beer garden, uh, Michael and Carolyn and I, and uh, for lack of a better word, debriefed their mission experience that they had just returned from and uh, really found a, a true friendship and kinship with them and hearing so much of their story. So when we were talking about this podcast, Will, I thought, you know, we need to have Michael on to tell his story. So Michael, meet Will. Will, meet Michael. Well, it's, it's good to be with you both today. And I've heard lots of stories about this podcast, listen to this podcast. So it's good to actually finally connect with you both and to be able to share a little about some of the work I'm involved with here in, uh, in this part of the world. And, and like Ashley said, it was, a, it was really a chance meeting through our common friend, John, and opportunity to meet some of the team that Ashley brought with her to, um, to New Zealand who are really uh, interested just to learn about what we do in this part of the world and to understand what God is calling us to do. So, um, and, and I think for me, uh, one of the things that I connected with with Ashley is just a strong sense of mission and what God is doing around the world. And so it was really encouraging to hear that and to learn from her uh, lots of things. So yeah, it was, it was a great time. When are you coming back, Ashley? I need to come back. Can I come back right now? I was Anytime just... you want. Yeah, always an open invitation. Love to have you. I would love to bring my husband because since I've seen you, I got married. Oh, I know. Yeah. And I would love to bring my husband. We've talked about this fall, coming this fall. So okay. if we can make that a reality, I yep. am all about it. And we've even talked about bringing Will with us. We've got spare rooms in our house. Always somewhere for you to stay if you need somewhere to stay. I appreciate it. That sounds it. Fantastic. Michael, welcome to The Broken Banquet. I have a question for you right off the bat. This has been a burning question that I think Ashley and I have both had have for several months now. After, I think, episode three or four, we were checking our statistics on the, the, the whatever the hosting kind of system is that we use for this. And somehow, Ashley found that we were at that time the number two religious podcast in New Zealand. So my question has been, how in the world <laughs> was the Broken Banquet? Then are there just not, are there only two religious podcasts that are broadcast <laughs> in New Zealand? And that's how we got to be number two. Do you have any, can you shed any light on this mystery for us of how we might have had the number two religious podcast in New Zealand at some point in time? Well, it obviously just shows how good a podcast you guys are delivering and, and how much in demand it is. I could be cynical. I don't think that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I could be cynical and say that New Zealanders are so anti-religious they don't listen to religious podcasts, uh, mm -hmm. which there may be some truth in that as well. But um, I, I suspect that because you had a few uh, people with New Zealand connections uh, early on, that there was a real strong sense mm -hmm. of uh, you actually cared about this part of the world, and therefore people wanted to listen to you. Well, whatever the reason is, we'll take it, and we're glad to have you on with us. That is true. We had Nate Hutchison, Whitney Hutchison, yeah. Hamish Taylor, who have all worked with Michael before. So this is really mm -hmm. yeah, the yeah, Broken yeah. Banquet family. Exactly. Mm -hmm. It is indeed. Yeah, yeah. Well, Michael, do you want to start off by just giving us an overview about, about who you are, um, your journey into ministry, culminating in how you took your first trip over to Pakistan and Afghanistan? Um, so let's start at the beginning and kind of work our way through. How long have we got, Ashley? Um, <laughs> so I, I, was, I guess I, I became a follower of Jesus when I was in my later teenage years and from fairly early on um, had a sense of call to ministry and to what God was doing. Um, I was privileged after I finished my undergraduate study, which incidentally was a degree in computer science, which has been very useful in a technology-driven church. I had the privilege of heading off to, uh, to the US and did some theological study there. And then since returning to New Zealand, have been involved in, uh, in ministry, in theological education and pastoral ministry, and always had a passion for cross-cultural 
mission work and what God was doing broadly uh, around the world. So when we connected with each other, uh, as you said, I was on staff at a local church here in New Zealand um, in an associate pastor role and had board responsibilities uh, in our local church and was always uh, interested in what God was doing around the world. I also volunteered for a, for a small New Zealand-based mission agency called Bright Hope World, which is when we talked about it. And, and so Carolyn, my wife and I, we picked up a responsibility for coordinating partnerships with people in three countries around the world, namely Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Indonesia. So um, interesting parts of the world to be involved in ministry, but we had opportunities to travel to those countries and to be involved in working with some of the national workers in those countries. And so it was after one of those trips that we had the opportunity to talk a little bit about what we were doing and why we were doing that and some of those sorts of things. So perhaps we can unpack that a little bit later on. Since that time, I have uh, I left my role at Shaw Community Church and now involved in a, in a mission organisation here in New Zealand called Global Connections. And, and we're involved in, in sending people out to do cross-cultural mission work all around the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's unpack your first uh, trip over to um, Afghanistan, Pakistan area. What did that look like for you? How did you feel that calling to go to those places? Who did you go with? Who was kind of who was the impetus for that partnership? So I should probably wind the clock back a, a, a long time. When I did my theological study, which was a long time ago, like this was back in, I've graduated in the early 90s from seminary. At that stage, we looked seriously about options for engaging in cross-cultural ministry. At that stage, there was a lot of changes in the former Soviet Union and things were changing there. My wife and I had a few discussions about whether we would go over there, but in God's timing, it didn't work out. We came home and started a family again. So I've always had a, a strong interest in what God is doing around the world and engaging in, in what God is doing. Through some mutual friends, had an opportunity to connect with this organization in New Zealand called Bright Hope World. And their approach to doing mission is a little bit different than many in the sense that they specifically want to partner with nationals that are involved in doing work in, in country. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were looking for different people that were already involved in ministry and then they would engage in them and support them in the ministry that they're, they're doing. And often that support was financial support. But the reason for engaging in nationals doing ministry work is that some of the traditional barriers to doing cross-cultural mission, namely funding and also language issues, cultural issues, all those sorts of things. If you work with nationals, then some of those barriers obviously are not there. There's a whole lot of other challenges, but in that particular situation, there's good opportunities to do that. So with that particular organization, uh, in a voluntary capacity, we traveled over to, to like I said, to Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and um, in Indonesia, and had opportunity to travel into those countries and just to spend a little bit of time working with some of the nationals that were involved in ministry there. And and obviously some of those are are challenging countries, particularly um, Afghanistan at the time. Uh, It was nowhere near as bad as what it is now. But the opportunities to connect with people over there was was very limited in the sense that obviously uh, to be a Christian in Afghanistan is... um, is extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, every person we talked to when we met there was able to share a story of some persecution that they had received or a close friend of theirs had received. So there was no way that you could get away from the fact that if you are a believer in Afghanistan, you were going to be persecuted for your, your faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of them had been beaten for their faith. Some of them had friends who had been uh, killed for their faith. So it was very real in that particular regard. So we deliberately keep a low profile in those countries and we tend to work with the leadership and support the leadership. And uh, we are very careful in terms of uh, what we do and how we do it because we obviously, first and foremost, want to support the, the nationals that are there. And so we need to make sure that we are supporting them and not hindering the ministry that they're involved in doing. 
and in countries like that, churches are nothing like the churches that we're used to in the West. People meet in small groups. You know, probably uh, six to ten people would meet together. Things that we do, which we would expect to be normal, like singing together, etc., probably don't happen in those environments because it would draw attention to themselves. So it's very much probably more what we'd experience to be a, you know, to, to be a, a small group that might meet in a home, uh, either in, in New Zealand or, or imagine in the US, opportunity to share and support one another, pray with one another, open up the scriptures and, and learn together. And in those countries, a lot of the work was very much around being able to provide for practical support for people there. One of the tragedies in Afghanistan is because basically it's a country that has spent most of its recent history in war with somebody or other. Um, there's a huge number of um, widows and orphans in those countries. Mm-hmm. And so therefore there's a lot of need to be able to support uh, the widows and orphans. So some of that is involved in like giving them new skills. So some of the, the work that was on there was providing uh, training around sewing centres and being able to give them some skills that were employable. Some of it was in regards to like simple things like teaching them how to grow their own garden so that they could actually be sustainable from a food point of view and ensure that they could actually feed their families and potentially have a little bit extra that they could sell to other people. And then on a bigger scale, they were also involved in, in doing some other uh work there to try and provide some employment and also some finances for the work there. So so all of the work that goes on in Afghanistan is under the ground, but there's a huge amount of growth that is taking place in church. And and it's interesting, obviously, in the last few years, there's been significant changes there with uh, change of government and the issues that there with uh, the Taliban regime that is there had the opportunity just um, just a month ago to travel to Pakistan. We decided that it was not safe to go into Afghanistan, but we had the opportunity to meet with a couple of believers that were part of some of that ministry in Afghanistan. They had come as refugees from Afghanistan into Pakistan, and we had connected them with one of our local partners in Pakistan. So we were able to meet with them and spend a few hours with them and talk to them about what was going on and some of the challenges that they were facing. So uh, Afghan believers in Pakistan as refugees, and they were still really committed to trying to ensure that the work that had been very active in Afghanistan was continuing. So they were providing support and they were looking for opportunities that they could travel back into Afghanistan to continue to support the work that's going on there, encourage the believers, see people come to faith as well. So, yeah, that's just really exciting that some of those parts of the world that you think, oh, God is not working in these areas, nothing is happening. And from an official point of view, that's true. But God is working and God is accomplishing great things in Afghanistan, and uh, it's just really encouraging to to know that even though there has been significant challenges, there is significant good work going on in a place like Afghanistan. So we just need to keep praying and keep encouraging those believers there. But I can assure you, God is working. God's accomplishing uh, things that we will probably never hear about in those countries. But God is doing His work. That is fascinating. It makes me think one of the themes that has come up often in previous episodes is the idea of just a ministry of presence. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if, if it's fair to categorize what you were doing as as that. You know, you're obviously you're not in a situation where you're building churches, you're not hosting big revivals and things like that because the context just won't permit it. Do you think the most important thing that you were able to accomplish was just being present and supportive for the local people who were trying to be church. Yep. And, and I think from, in terms of our ministry, uh, the presence is very important that, you know, when uh, my wife and I travel to countries like, whether it be Pakistan or, or Afghanistan, I think it's very much just to tell those believers that actually we're here, we're journeying alongside you. We might not be the ones that are actively 
on the ground. We might not be the ones that are able to do the things that you're doing, but we love you. We pray for you. We will support you in whatever way we can. And it's just so encouraging for both for them and for us to know that uh, they're not doing this alone, that they have people that are journeying alongside them and that they are able to just have that sense of, of knowing that we're in this together and able to do that. And I think one of the things that amazed me, even in the Afghan context, in terms of the present side of things, is we listen to stories of people that had become believers in some of their testimonies. And it was very much the quiet presence of believers that led them to come to faith. Some of them even said the fact that when they first became a follower of Christ, that they were not even willing to share with their spouse that they had become a believer because there are situations where even their spouse would tell the authorities that they had become a follower of Christ. So it was very much that sense of being present in this situation in the family and in that relationship, praying for them, living a godly life, and through that, when opportunities came to be able to share with them um, about Christ and about that. Uh, it's interesting, one of the guys that we met with recently when who were refugees from Afghanistan, he was, he was a younger person. And we said to him, so, so how did you come to faith? What was the... What was the journey that led you to um, become a, a believer of Christ? And, and he shared the fact that the older man that was there was actually now his brother-in-law. And so his sister had obviously married and come to faith. And they had invited this younger man to come and live with them and to be a part of their family. And it was through that experience of living in the family that he was able to see that it was something different in terms of the way that they lived their lives in terms of the interactions they had as a couple, in terms of the way that they were able to just have that peace about them that was obviously uncommon in the difficult situation in Afghanistan. And so it was simply through the testimony of the way they lived their lives that this this younger brother, this, this uh, brother-in-law, became a follower of Christ. And, and it just made me realise again that, yes, at times there's an opportunity to stand on the street corner and proclaim the gospel, but at times it's just living godly lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's more the way that we live our lives, being present amongst people that actually speaks as loud, if not louder, than what it does to be vocally proclaiming the gospel. And I know in the Western society we have the opportunities to do that and, and we can do that sort of thing. But in many parts of the world, the way I live my life is going to be a lot stronger testimony and a demonstration of who God is and what God is doing than the things that we might actually um, be able to proclaim. So, so yeah, I, I think that that's that whole idea of just being there as Christians, living godly lives is a significant um, testimony and it's a way that many people come to faith. I've heard, I've heard a lot of people call the Holy Land the fifth gospel, but I've also heard people say that it's actually it's the testimony of believers is the fifth gospel. And that for a lot of people in the world, that's the only one of the gospels they'll ever encounter. Yeah. And, and, and it's the same again in, in Indonesia. There's a lot of uh, growth taking place in Indonesia and the ministries that we visited were involved in um, very much a, a discipleship movement. So believers would meet together in, in groups of six to 12 people and, and they would have networks of leaders and, and stuff like that. But again, the, the way that most of those people came to faith is those that were believers would see a need in the community and they would go about meeting that need and that presence provided an opportunity to share the gospel. So like in Indonesia, for instance, there's a lot of natural disasters. It seems they're regularly having you know, earthquakes and tsunamis and all those sorts of things, which on the one hand, from a human perspective, it is obviously devastating. But from a Christian perspective, it's actually an opportunity to be able to have some sense of being able to share some practical support and love for those that are in need. And so in Indonesia, a lot of the opportunities have come up through those sorts of things, being able to provide help in times of disaster and crisis, going into villages and seeing the fact that this village has little or no sanitation 
and therefore there might be opportunities to provide some sense of sanitation and clean water and those sorts of things. So it's very much been able to address some of the practical needs that we all have as, as human beings, but they become a point of contact to be able to connect with the community, offer some sense of hope and change within the community, and then on that platform be able to share Christ and see people come to faith as well. So I don't have anything against big churches and, and, and opportunities that big churches provide, but actually the growth that's taking place around the world is often small groups of believers just being Christ in, the, in, in their local communities uh, in a one-on-one -on -one way and, and making changes in that sort of way. So I completely agree with you because, not to toot my horn, but yesterday I preached on that Jesus didn't say to add salt. He said to be the salt. And he didn't say to add the light. He said to be the light. And yeah. so it's our calling as Christians, as followers of Christ to go and go, whether it's to across the street or to Jerusalem or to Judea or to Samaria, wherever it is, and to be the salt and be the light. And that's through the presence. That's how we, how we can add yeah. our presence. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I might have two questions, but it depends on the answer to the first one. And this is, it's maybe a little just anecdotal, but is it as difficult to be a Christian in Indonesia as it is in Afghanistan and Pakistan? I know Indonesia has like the largest Muslim population in the world, right? So is it, is it as dangerous to be openly Christian in Indonesia as it is in those other places? Uh, it depends where you are in Indonesia, um, because it does vary depending on what part of the country you are in, so in some parts of the countries it, it would be as difficult, yes, and, and there's certain areas that are very strongly Muslim and therefore you would get persecution as a Christian. Other parts of the country it is less so. As in lots of countries, it probably tends to be as you go outside the cities into some of the more smaller rural and village areas that there can often be significant persecution in those particular areas. So, mm -hmm. so that's probably where the challenge comes from uh, in some of those smaller areas. Yeah. So here's why I ask. On one of my trips to the Holy Land, we were at the Jordan River and some of the people in our group were being baptized or remembering their baptisms. But when we got there, there was this very large group of like several hundred people over at the, the far end of the area where we were. And they had speakers set up and they were playing music and it was a full on celebration. And I was really frustrated because the image that I had in my mind was it was going to be very sort of quiet and we were going to you know, be sort of meditative and that sort of thing. And you just couldn't because there was just all of this noise. And I asked somebody, you know, kind of what's what's going on over there? And they said, oh, it's a group from Indonesia that are here and they're being right. baptized. And then I realized I'll never know the 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 cost mm -hmm. involved in getting baptized like they probably know the cost involved in getting baptized. And because of that, they should dance and sing and shout all the like it totally humbled me. And, and sort of, I feel like, put me in my place because it made me recognize how important, like, of course, we sacramentally, it's important, but also culturally in a bunch of other ways, what they were doing was huge. I'll never forget that moment. And, and I kind of needed that sort of kind of wake up call. Um, but I did want to make sure that I was at least not entirely making that up, that there is cost involved in being a Christian in Indonesia. <laughs> But my observations are quite interesting if you contrast that in Pakistan. And, and again, there's, there's persecution for Christians in Pakistan. But they're just so bold in their faith. Like whenever we went to a, a, a church meeting or something like that, they like to turn their sound system up as loud as they possibly can so that people <laughs> in the neighborhood will hear about it. Because, you know, in, in those Muslim countries, you know, you, you get the wake-up calls in the morning mm -hmm. from the local mosque and all those sorts of things and all that. So, so in some of those Christian communities in Pakistan, basically their goal is to make as much noise as what the Muslims would make in their communities. So, so you know, at, at one of the Christian communities in Pakistan at one point, they would go around with a speaker and 
prey over the community and stuff like that as loud as they could. So I always find that interesting that, yes, it's a country that is uh, is a Muslim country, Christians experience persecution for their faith. But in terms of their boldness to proclaim the gospel, all that sort of stuff, they're just out there. And it's like if God should allow them to be, you know, it's it's almost like it was in the book of Acts where the fact the apostles saw the privilege to be persecuted for their faith. And um, I find it quite humbling in that situation because some of these believers in Pakistan knew that there may be consequences because of the way that they're proclaiming their faith but they're doing it anyway. And even if they were to receive some sense of persecution, that wasn't going to stop them. They just wanted to be bold and they want to see the face. So it does depend in different countries. You know, some of it, it is underground and they're very quiet. Other countries like Pakistan, they're just out there. They're very much in your face. Um, and they were just prepared to face the consequences. Uh, one of the areas that we visited in Pakistan Six or seven years ago, there was actually a couple of suicide bombers that entered some a couple of churches there, and a number of believers were killed in those particular areas. So, you know, the idea that they could suffer for their faith was very genuine, and they were still as bold as ever in terms of wanting to make sure that people understood that they were Christians and were able to proclaim what they believed in regards. And it's interesting in that regard as well that... um. Just as a follow-up, that because there had been people that had been killed because of their faith uh, through those bomb blasts, uh, some of the believers we were working with were now providing support to those widows and orphans because of that bomb blast. And, And so just the way that the Christian community had wrapped themselves around those that had suffered because of it. So it's like, yes, they're bold in proclaiming their faith, but they're also bold and supporting those that have been affected uh, in that way because of the implications of what it meant to uh, to have that particular disaster that took place there. So, yeah, there's, there's a whole lot of things going on. But, but, but I guess in terms of Christian community, active in sharing their faith, active in loving and supporting one another, uh, I just get really encouraged when I go into parts of the world like that. Well, and one of the things we like to talk about on this podcast is what do others uh, bring to the table? What do they bring to the banquet table? So boldness is absolutely something that Middle Easterners would bring to the table for us to learn from. Um, How exciting that is, how convicting that is for me, because coming from this a very calm aspect over here in the United States of where we don't tend to get really religious excited about things anymore. You know, we don't have to be bold for our faith. And I think that that might be a little bit the same in New Zealand. You have a very unchurched population. Mm -hmm. So what is it like going back and forth between those two types of cultures, Michael, for you of going to Pakistan and being around those who are so bold and excited about their faith and then coming back to New Zealand. What, what is that like? What are those two different church scenarios like? Yeah. I always find that quite challenging in the sense that, you know, on the one hand, we say that we're going over to um, some of these countries to help them and to support them. And on the one hand, we are, because uh, we can meet some of their needs and we can provide encouragement. But I'm sure that I come back just as blessed, probably more blessed by spending time and being encouraged by them as what um, they are by us being there. So I, I do find it quite humbling being in some of these different parts of the world because they are just so bold in their faith. And they are so willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. So I find that very, very humbling. And just the work that's going on, you know, like Indonesia, when we first connected with one of these church planting movements uh, in Indonesia, my colleague who I traveled with said, oh, this particular church planting movement, every 15 months, it's gro- it's doubling in size. And I, to be honest, I didn't believe him. I thought, you must have your stats wrong. But went over there and talked to people and saw what was happening on the ground. It's true. It's probably slowed down a bit because of COVID. I can't think of any church movements uh, in New Zealand. I don't know about in 
in the US, that is doubling in size every 15 months. The growth is phenomenal. So I just find that so encouraging to see the fact that these people are just bold in their faith, sharing their faith, and God is answering their prayers that the, the church is, is growing and they're seeing things take place. In Pakistan, we sat down with um, one of our partners there who is a really is a church church planter and we've been struggling to get our heads around actually what this guy did. So we, we sat down with a map of Pakistan and put some pins on where he was working and what was going on. And all over the country... He said, oh, yeah, I planted that church there, or we support pastors in this particular area. And even though there was only one church there, there's now four churches in that area. And, and so this this one uh, person, and in terms of what he was doing, you know, there's about 25 different churches that he had either directly planted or through the people that he'd been involved in supporting had planted churches. Some of them he was supporting financially. And, and it's like, I, I just don't know any of those sorts of things that are happening in a New Zealand context. So it's like, I just get so encouraged um, and somewhat, um, I guess, rebuked by how poor a job we do here in New Zealand. You know, I'd be happy if we planted new churches. If we planted one new church a year within our church movement, I think I'd be quite happy. It's nothing compared to some of the growth that's taking place around different parts of the world. So, I really do enjoy going and learning and being encouraged by them. But on the one hand, they're actually not doing anything too out of the ordinary or too different. They're just being obedient to God. Mm-hmm. I think they're just being faithful to God. And because they don't have a lot, they have a lot more dependence upon God. I, at least from my experience in the, in the Western society, that often... Prayer is the last step in the process, you know. Whereas for these people, it's like they depended completely upon God. Mm. And so therefore, the most that we could do for them was to actually pray for them and believe that God would be the one that answers their prayers. So so I think that just that whole utter dependence upon God is something that um, I confess I just don't have that same level of dependence upon God and those are the things that I wish that I could communicate back to people in New Zealand and live out more in my own life as well. So it's always humbling to go to those countries. I, I'm sure I always come away with much more than what I have contributed. Yeah. I completely agree because one of the most profound things that Pastor Mongerard and Haiti said to me at one point was, Ashley, we may have the economic poverty, but holy cow, you have the spiritual poverty. And that's that's exactly true. And I think in terms of learning what faith is all about and learning what total dependence upon God is all about, uh, in terms of seeing God answer prayer on a day-to-day basis, in terms of actually praying for our daily bread, you know, we literally see that happening in some of those places. And to be honest, in the Western society like New Zealand, I don't have to rely upon God for those sorts of things, that I can rely upon the government and upon other things in our society. Um, so to learn that total dependence upon God is something that I am still growing in and I need to learn from other people in these parts of the world. So I'm curious to know if you think that there might be a correlation. I'm still thinking about this church growth and and the fact that you said they're really not doing anything that out of the ordinary or extraordinary in these places where they're seeing such incredible growth compared to where you are, where you wish you were seeing more growth. Do you think the fact that in the areas where they are seeing such growth, they're in cultures that are already sort of hyper-religious to begin with, even though it's not the Christian faith, but religion and having that be such an important part of daily life and everything that's going on. Um, do you think that that actually, to some degree, makes church growth easier because the culture is 
used to it compared to a culture where I think Nate, when we interviewed Nate Hutchison, he said like 4% of New Zealand is, is are believers. So in that sense, if people are just kind of indifferent to religion, that almost seems like it would be a harder hill to climb than one where the, the idea of an organized religion and that kind of authority and, and everything, people get that. It's just a matter of convincing them, you know, of, of this other way. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And, and I suspect you're probably right that you go to those those countries and there definitely is a lot more religious awareness. So you, you go to somewhere like Pakistan and it's a Muslim country. So so people are very much engaged in, in the religion. But even as you go below the surface, like I, I, I remember a really interesting conversation we had one night. We're in a rural village in Pakistan and uh, just sitting there under the stars um, talking. And the next door neighbor came over um, and this family has been trying to share Christ with, with them and support them. And so this this man came over and uh, sat down and talked to us and he was a Muslim and, and so we just had a bit of an interaction with him and he was obviously interested in the fact that we were Christians and the fact that as a Westerner, we were prepared to travel to this tiny village in rural Pakistan and, and to be uh, <clears throat> with them in that community. So we quizzed him a bit about uh, the local mosque that was there and his connection with the local mosque. He wasn't religious at all. Yes, he was Muslim officially, but he was very much a, what you would say, a cultural Muslim, much as you might get, uh, well, at least ha- how it used to be within the North American context, you get the, the cultural Christians, Christian and yeah, none, but not in, in, in anything further. And so it was very much that same idea. So religion is a lot more common, and so therefore people are open to religion. I think the other thing that takes place is the fact that you get, in the Western society, you don't need to depend upon a higher being. You are able to look after yourself. You are able to make sure that you can provide for your family and for yourself. So I think that whole Western individualism is something that we fight against in in New Zealand. It's like, why would I need anything else why would I need to rely upon someone like God or something like that Uh, I'm independent in myself I can get everything I need to um, survive whereas in some of these other countries there's no way that you can survive on your own there's no way that you can probably provide for your family or if somebody gets sick how are you going to care for them and stuff like that? So so I think there's that sense that in a Western society, we are so individualistic, so self-sufficient. Actually, we don't need God. So while I agree with what you're saying, <clears throat> I think there's also that sense that in a Western society, mm-hmm. essentially we don't need God or we think we don't need God. So therefore, we do it on our own and we can do whatever we think is appropriate and there's no God, so it doesn't actually matter. And to be perfectly honest, I don't need God. So I think the conversation is a bit different as well from my experience. Well, Michael, in your role now with um, as the executive director of uh, this missions ministry, how, how do you see your role going forward? I, what I've heard you talk about a lot is um, walking alongside those who are indigenous to the areas in which they are working. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and being almost like a pastoral care to those so that you're with them, you're walking with them, you're counseling them, you're caring for them. Uh, is, is that how um, is how that is that how you see your role? Yeah, well, and it's interesting that, that basically I, I wear two different hats. <clears throat> a lot of what I've been sharing about through my role with Bright Hope World, uh, I work in a voluntary capacity in the, in the same way that anyone else would. So my role in facilitation, some of those areas, is in a volunteer role. My my day job, as it were, I work for a mission organisation called Global Connections, and we serve a denomination of churches in New Zealand. So um, we are part of the Christian community churches here in New Zealand, which um, probably not so familiar within the North American context, but we trace our heritage back to the UK, to the Plymouth Brethren churches uh, 
in the UK. So that's basically our, our heritage where we come from. <clears throat> and we have a very strong history of sending out people to do cross-cultural mission work. In fact, even though New Zealand is a relatively young country, you know, we were only established and, and settled in the, in, the, um, in the early 1800s, that our mission organisation has been sending out um, people to do cross-cultural mission work for over uh, 125 years. And so we are very much involved in working and supporting churches to do cross-cultural mission work. So um, within our church movement, one of the things that we strongly support is the fact that ultimately it's the local church that um, identifies and commissions people to do God's work and cross-cultural mission. And we would see that right back in the book of Acts where you see local congregations laying hands upon people, sending them out to do the work of, of ministry. So so we very much see ourselves, rather than a mission-sending organisation, we call ourselves a, a mission support organisation. So we work alongside local churches to help them to be able to identify and send people to do cross-cultural mission work around the world. So that's the that's the... That's my day job in that sense. So we're very much involved in supporting that. That looks like working alongside local church leaders to be able to help them support or help them identify people that may be called into cross-cultural ministry. It may be helping them find training options to be able to do that. Uh, it may be empowering the church to help raise finances to send people to do cross-cultural mission work as well. So... So we work closely with local churches in that particular task. When someone is identified and they might move into cross-cultural ministry, we provide some of the logistical support around it. So we become the conduit for sending finances to those mission partners and uh, providing a, a prayer support base to ensure that they are able to uh, be uh, prayer supported while they're involved in doing the ministry. And over the years, cross-cultural mission, as you know, looks quite different. So we basically have three groups of people doing cross-cultural mission work. Some would be those New Zealanders that travel overseas to do long-term work, whether it be translation work or church planting or medical work, education work. Uh, and that's traditionally been what we have been involved in doing. A growing group of people are those that live in New Zealand but travel regularly overseas to do work. So they may live, you know, half the year in New Zealand, but half the year would be traveling around, involved in, in working with people. And it might be in countries where you are not able to live in because of restrictions and those sorts of things, or simply because there are national leaders that are able to do work. They just need support and some extra expertise. And then the growing group of people we also have is those based in New Zealand, they're the working cross-culture in New Zealand. New Zealand is now very much a, a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, and more and more we have people coming to New Zealand. So we have people that are involved in doing um, cross-cultural work within New Zealand, uh, whether it be with refugee communities and all those sorts of things. So, so yes, yeah, so, so that's what I'm involved in doing. So as I said, we see ourselves being very much a and an enabling organisation to ensure that local churches can help send people to do cross-cultural mission work, and we will support them providing finances, providing uh, prayer, providing other expertise that they may not have to ensure that they do the work of ministry. So as I said, we've got um, a long history of doing that. We've currently got about 120 partners that are spread around the world involved in doing various things. And I guess for me, when it comes to cross-cultural mission, I see it very much uh, like both parts of what I do I love. On the one hand, I love working with national workers, identifying them, supporting them, enabling them to do the work of the ministry. But I also see, as you look in the New Testament, that God also calls local people and sends them out to do cross-cultural work in contexts that are not their own and send them to neighbouring countries or right across the other side of the world. And so to me, both of those are part of cross-cultural mission. Well, what a gift for them to have you and your experience and background and, and the ways that you've been formed 
as just as a resource for when you're preparing other people. We've talked a lot about training and in some cases the lack thereof before people are sent into the field. And I think having someone like you who can be a part of that formation for others is uh, that's a huge, a huge asset. Yeah. And, and I guess it's interesting that I would never consider myself to be a storyteller, but the more I, the more I learn about what God is doing and the more I read the gospels is Jesus was a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in terms of, you know, you look at some of the stories that he told and in many ways, he wasn't telling complicated things, but I think people relate to stories and I think people love to, to hear about what God is doing uh, in various ways and in various contexts. I was, I was preaching at church this last Sunday and, you know, just able to share a few stories about what God's been doing. And, and it's so exciting just to see the way that people respond to stories and the way that they can learn about God through, uh, through stories. Well, I think what we'll do is our one of our next podcasts is that we'll get you and John Woodward on and we'll have a story tell off and it will be fantastic because you all will be able to give so many great examples of how God is working all over the world and how God has used you to be part of his story. So I think that that episode may be coming up, Will. Sounds good. Michael, we've really, really, really enjoyed you being on the Broken Banquet podcast today and for being, uh, I think you're the fifth New Zealander uh, that we've had on. So thank you for keeping the streak running uh, on the Broken Banquet. Well, thank you for the invite to be with you today. Uh, It's really good to be able to talk with you both. And um, and whenever you come to New Zealand, please come and spend some time with us. Uh, It would be good to be able to catch up with you and perhaps Rather than doing this podcast online, we can sit together around the kitchen table and do it live. So that would be much more fun to be able to do that. Perhaps we can bring John along as well, and the four of us can sit around the table and tell stories around the table and enjoy fellowship together in that way. Nothing would please me more. <laughs> I hope our corporate sponsors are listening because we're going to need to work on that travel budget a little bit. Okay. But- it sounds like a fantastic idea. Qantas Airlines or Air New Zealand. Air New Zealand, Zealand thank yeah, you for yeah, sponsoring yeah. this podcast. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, can we can we hashtag Air New Zealand yeah, yeah. before this? Yeah. <laughs> well, Michael, thank you so much. We appreciate your time and you sharing just a little bit of, of what you've lived in your life in ministry. Uh, I know Ashley and I have been blessed to, to spend this time with you, and I know our listeners will be too. So thank you so much. Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye, Ashley. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.